Ladies and gentlemen, we're excited to have an opportunity to talk to a gentleman. John Klein is here with me today, and we're going to have a very provocative conversation that I believe you will really enjoy that will be enlightening and relative to where you are and some of what you may be thinking, what I'm hearing that you're thinking over social media and network dealing with the media today. Now, you might not be familiar with John Klein unless you're in the entertainment or business industry. You might not know him, so let me give you some sort of insight as to who he is. He is the co-founder and CEO of Tat Media, a cutting-edge subscription video platform for over-the-top channels centered on personalities with highly engaged forms and substances. All types of people from Herman Cain to Sarah Palin to Christian rockers are dealing with everybody, myself included. But what's more importantly, you might recognize some of the work that he has done down through the years. If you heard of Anderson Cooper, if you've heard of Sanjay Kupta, if you've heard of Fareed Zakaria and many, many others, you will recognize that they're all people that he led, directed, hired, and uh, motivated to achieve the greatness that they have right now, as he has six years of experience as the president of CNN. He brings a very, very important perspective and bird's eye view to the understanding of media. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. What's going on with the media? What do you believe? What do you think? Who do you trust? In the midst of fake news and all kinds of other news, how can we separate the hamburger from the steak? Thank you, John, for being with us today. It's my pleasure, Bishop. It's great to be here with you. You know, you have a very unique perspective because you've been in the underbelly of what makes media work today. You're not just a consumer of the news, but you helped to manufacture and put out and promote and produce news for years, all the way back to 60 Minutes and elsewhere. Where are we headed? What do you see happening with media today that is different from, say, 20 years ago? Well, you know, in a strange way, if we're talking about media today, specifically on this day that we're speaking, I actually think that mainstream media is facing a potential golden age because you have in the White House somebody who is such a rich target. Both the president and many of his appointees are making it plain what the relationship between journalists and politicians ought to be, which is antagonistic. And I think for the last couple of decades, a certain coziness has developed between the press and politicians And that sense of antagonism has abated quite a bit. And in a weird way, Trump's antipathy toward the press might remind mainstream journalists of what the proper relationship ought to be. So you think that the antagonistic attitude that exists between the current administration and the media might be to the benefit of the consumer in that we might get a more honest depiction of what is going on, or do you think that bias is still inherent in the overall system of the news? I think that what's happened over the last 20, maybe 30 years, is that mainstream journalists have begun to look at political coverage as coverage of the game of politics rather than the substance of political decisions. Most of the analysis that you see on the air and a lot of what you read in newspapers has to do with the tactics that the politicians are using, why such and such a candidate said what they said, or why the president or another official staged an event where they did or how they did it, instead of focusing on the actual 
substance of what it is they are trying to do. And the journalists basically have been treating politics and decision-making and governance as a game. And it's no wonder that citizens have begun to regard politics and governance as meaningless and divorced from their real lives because the message that they get from mainstream journalists is that uh, that's all a game. Governance is just a means of manipulating people. It isn't really about anything. And I think what we've seen clearly in these first weeks of the Trump administration is that, in fact, politics and elections lead to real consequences and real policy changes that have an impact on real people real fast. And that can be like a bucket of cold water on the press today. I think they just got too cozy. They they fell in love with the access. The journalists fell in love with being part of the power apparatus rather than challenging that power apparatus 24-7. When you start talking about the game, and it does sometimes feel like sports, your team, my team, and the fights are breaking out in the stands while the entertainers are making all the money. It's a very scary situation. Uh, But when you think about that and you think about the protesters up under the current administration, there's a visceral attitude that has moved from the visuals that we see on the media into the living rooms of America. Are you in any way concerned that we are generating more perhaps heat than light on these issues? Well, heat can attract light. That is, if there is a ferocious argument going on within the culture, you know, if millions of people pour out around the world as they did the day of the Women's March, or if you have these kind of ad hoc overheated battles erupt as they did in Berkeley over the appearance of that horrible blogger the other day, that can then prompt deeper attention to the issues that are animating those protesters. And that's a healthy thing. And I think we just haven't paid very much attention to actual issues. I think the same goes for a lack of attention having been paid to the economic insecurity felt by the people in the Rust Belt states, in red states in general, the the Trump voters, the insecurity that they've been feeling over their economic situation and their sense of cultural displacement over the last few decades. So you had mainstream news organizations closing down bureaus throughout America and conducting more and more of their operations out of centralized locations in New York and Los Angeles. And it's small wonder that they fell out of touch with that bulk of Americans who live in the middle. Do you think that's the reason that they were so misinformed about the polls? I mean, it seems like back toward the end of last year where we were getting all these reports about the polls, the polls were saying this, the numbers were saying that. And then when we actually got to the election, it was shocking for many, many Americans that Hillary Clinton was not in the lead, that it was proposed that she was. In fact, Donald Trump ended out front, at least in electoral votes, not popularity votes. But there was an obvious gap between what the media was saying and what actually happened. Is that a result of them being out of touch with middle America? I'm not sure that that is what caused the problem with the polls. You know, there are people who live and breathe election-oriented data, and they still swear by these polls, and much the way that you might be flying on an airplane 
and it completely covered in fog, but the pilots are relying on their instruments and their instruments are telling them exactly where they are. And the people who believe in the polling data truly believe at the bottom of their hearts that the polls were correct and that what caused the errors was the Comey announcement about the new emails shortly before the election. And then that then ignited kind of a slide, both inciting some Hillary voters who were on the fence to just not show up and encouraging other Trump voters to come out in greater force. I see. You know, and I don't know enough about polling per se, but I do think that and I felt this at the time, my wife would tell you that I used to look at her all through the summer when and the fall when all those polls were reporting that, you know, it was a sure thing for Hillary and that it was impossible for Trump to catch up. I just said, I don't know, you know, we live in Chappaqua, the same town that Hillary lives in. And there were not a lot of Hillary posters in our town. And I thought that said a lot. And I travel across America quite a bit. And I was not seeing a lot of enthusiasm for Hillary, and I wasn't seeing as many Hillary signs as I saw Trump signs. So it didn't fit with the mood of the country that I was exposed to. And sure enough, the Trump voters were much more motivated to come out for him than Hillary supporters were for her. Back in November, you wrote a kind of strong, I'll almost say scathing piece throw campaign mouthpieces off cable news. And then you begin to make a very substantive argument about the bantering back and forth and the campaign mouthpieces and how it became a bit of a circus. What made you want to write that particular op-ed and what message were you trying to get out? You know, I feel fortunate because I'm, you know, I wrote it really from the perspective of a viewer first. You know, I, I was watching all of this coverage quite intently and dismayed by a lot of what I saw. And I realized, well, geez, I'm somebody who might actually you know, be able to get a platform to express this point of view that I think a lot of non-professional journalists were sharing, but couldn't quite put their finger on. And it was just this sense that there were important issues to be talking about around this election, such as the dislocation felt by the people who would become Trump voters. And that wasn't being covered at all. All we were covering were the symptoms of the dislocation that was being felt through accusations about Hillary Clinton or, you know, what Donald Trump was saying, you know, caught on tape and all of that, which they have their place, but there was no moving on from it. It's like the record player was stuck in one groove, and it was just repeating endlessly. And that doesn't inform anyone about the momentous choice that they have to make. And when news organizations walk away from their responsibility to actually inform us, to analyze, to help us chew over what's going on in the world and make sense of it, hopefully, then what it gets filled with is rumor and fake news, as we've seen, and supposition, and the echo chamber takes hold. And, you know, I think that the mainstream media organizations still have a vital role to play in correcting for all that, but they've got to step up and do it. Let's back up a little bit, because we don't want to assume that the the listener knows his some do, some don't, that the mouthpieces that are on night after night on Fox and or CNN or MSNBC or whoever the outlet is, 
that is kind of like a paid boxing match where they are hired to come in the ring and debate and fight these issues. How much does that affect the atmosphere that we hear and the direction and the tone of the meeting? And why did you think that some of those mouthpieces were not productive in accomplishing what was good for the country, even if it was good for the ratings? Yeah, my specific beef is and was with the professional partisans who often are on the payroll of particular candidates or either the Democratic or Republican parties. And yet the networks will also pay them to come on their air as supposed analysts of the campaign or the administration, when really they're not analyzing anything. They are simply providing the talking points from their interested point of view. So you're not getting an honest, dispassionate analysis. You're getting the talking points that those organizations have decided upon. And sure enough, if you flip around the channels, you'll hear all of the campaign surrogates mouthing the same talking points every day. And you would sit there and see that happening and and wonder, well, why do the networks want to provide the microphone for that when they could be pushing beyond that and getting into real analysis? So I have no problem with partisans on either side debating the issues on the merits or even analyzing what's going on or why the trends are happening. It's the dishonesty of bringing on the paid hacks who everybody knows are just repeating the same talking points. Now, it happened back when I was running CNN too. I was at CNN from 2004 till 2010. I was the president of uh, the US network. And when I got there, I saw that we had a lot of people on our payroll who also were on the payroll of the Republican or Democratic national committees. And you'd hear them just spitting out the identical statements that you could hear on MSNBC or CNBC or Fox News from other people. And I used to call them on the carpet about it and tell them, we can't keep having you on the air if you're not going to express your own thoughts, if you're just going to be reading off of the email du jour about what to be saying. But you've got to police that strongly. And I felt that none of the networks were policing it in an especially thorough way. I think that the mainstream audience is frustrated. They might not have the finesse or the access to the information to know that the fight that they're watching is fixed and staged in some ways. But I think that credibility has gone out of the window. What does it take for a news outlet to regain credibility for its viewers? Well, you know, the good news is that it can happen quickly if they do a good, strong, aggressive job. I think CNN post-election has been very aggressive in holding Trump and his appointees accountable. You know, they broke the story that he had been briefed about the Russian hacking, and that was Carl Bernstein of Watergate fame, toppled President Nixon, was right there on the screen helping to lead that charge. And and that's a healthy sign. So I think that any of these organizations, the Washington Post has done a great job, the New York Times, they can double down on real journalism that unearths information about wrongdoing or misrepresentation. And if they do it aggressively, they can be right back in everyone's good graces. But they're going to have to do it for a consistent period of time. And they're going to have to be ready to weather the highly partisan slings and arrows that they will be assaulted with, especially from right-wing radio. 
I think talk radio from the right has an enormous influence over the opinions and creates a mistrust of all institutions, but especially the media. And it's resulted in this decline in belief and trust in the media over the last 20 years or so. When you talk about that sort of thing, it's very interesting to me for you to dig down into it. There are certain people who consume the vast bulk of their news information from talk radio. There are others that go online. Some go to social media. Some go to television. Does it depend on where you receive the news from, what you think the truth is? And isn't that dangerous to give that much power to one group of people who only reflect one perspective, regardless of which one it is? Yes. I think that we subconsciously seek out information that comports with our worldview and reassures us that the way we think of things is the right way. And when you're aware of that, you can force yourself to expose yourself to other points of view. You know, I work out with a trainer three, four times a week who is a diehard conservative right-wing radio addict. And I learned so much through our conversations about why he sees the world the way he does. And I try to read the things that he reads and I try to listen to the things he listens to just to understand, to find in there the grain of insight. And I think it's important to do. I I don't think we can shut ourselves off from the other side. No matter what side we come down on, we've got to be open to the full range of opinions and facts as they're presented and then judge for ourselves what is true and you know what makes sense i suppose moving forward well you know it really brings to mind i mean america is trying to have a conversation about race in america and it's very uncomfortable conversations and there are deep emotions on both sides of the issue and we really don't have the appropriate language to talk about anything that's controversial but you really hit something that really resonates with me i think that until right-wingers talk to left-wingers until believers talk to non-believers and we have substantive conversations. We're talking at each other, but we don't ever talk to each other. How do we begin to create an atmosphere for discourse about everything, education, about criminal justice, about racial discrimination in America? Right now, we're talking through the media and through social media. Is there a healthier way to engage honest informed ideologies? Yeah. Amen. I mean, I I think that is so important. And I'm beginning to suspect that face-to-face avenues or vehicles are going to become more and more important if we are to overcome this unfortunate trend. You know, I was just reading about an organization that was formed after the atomic bombs were exploded at the end of World War II. In 1946, a group of scientists formed to spread across the country, holding small meetings in libraries and schools and churches around the country to explain to citizens what these horrible new devices, these atomic bombs were, and why it was important that civilians control nuclear energy and not the military. They fanned out across the country. And it hit me that maybe that's something that we ought to do about facts, about news and information, Mm -hmm. to draw people from both sides together and encourage a conversation. Because when you look the other person in the eye, it begins to be harder to scapegoat. I think we're seeing a lot of scapegoating today. You know, I think that's a big part of the racial divide. White people who are feeling economic insecurity are blaming 
others, immigrants, African-Americans, anybody who's not them is to blame. And of course, that's not the reason, but it's easy to pick out a group of others. I'm Jewish. Jews have been picked out as the other for centuries. And so we're very sensitive to that. And I think one way to get around it is to begin at least to spend more time physically in one another's presence. You know, if we get together and we begin to talk and we have these kinds of conversations that I think are really critical for our children and for our children's children, we begin to find out that there's more to unite us than there is to divide us. But from a business perspective, when you look at media, that kind of kumbaya, why can't we all get along stuff doesn't attract viewers. And if you don't attract viewers, you don't make money. Isn't it true in order to keep profit margins up? There are manipulators who need us to fight to raise the ratings. Well, there are people who do that in order to try to raise ratings. Then there are people like Oprah, who actually did pretty nicely with a kumbaya approach. Um, (laughs) and, 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 you know, I suspect that there's more upside in that direction. And then specifically in the news business, it's been my experience that for news organizations, great journalism increases profits. Great journalism is great business. There are, of course, outlets that want to pose as journalism that are really just there to fan hatred or just to present one narrow bias point of view. Those organizations wouldn't profit because they can't actually do great journalism. But if you look at 60 Minutes, for example, which I was lucky enough to oversee about 20 years ago, it's enormously profitable. It is superlative journalism, and people can't get enough of it. You take a look at a show like 60 Minutes, and it is super profitable because of the superior journalism that it does. The Washington Post has seen a surge in its revenues because it's been doing aggressive reporting. And when I was running CNN, we doubled our profits in the six years that I was there by focusing on aggressive journalism, staying away from opinion. Now, it's funny because... Am I right in thinking, because I I have thought this to be true for some time, Fox actually has the highest ratings. Yes. If Fox News has higher ratings than most entertainment channels on cable, not just news channels, it's an enormous ratings juggernaut. But, you know, cable is all about appealing to distinct niches. So they are hugely successful in the world of cable, but you're not talking about the majority of Americans tuning in to watch Fox News every day. What they've done is successfully appealed to a very motivated minority. And that's what keeps them in business. You know, it seems like you almost have to pick a side (laughs) right now. I mean, as you phrase it, they have picked up a particular following with a particular worldview and their ratings have soared because of it. And it seems like at least for the last 10 years or so, that model has been the model where everybody has gone to their own corner. Do you think that now we are trying to find middle ground and where's our best chance of finding it? Is it through, I mean, President Trump has changed the way that presidents communicate with people today. Do we need to bypass and have direct communication? Can we achieve a real honest conversation through, say, social media where it is not filtered in any way and we have these open frank conversations or are they more breeding grounds for hostility? Well, the interesting thing about social media conversations is that so many of them are based upon mainstream news reporting. So when Donald Trump is tweeting, he's tweeting about something he just saw on 
a TV network or that he read in the New York Times. And so there's still a critical need for those engines of objective reporting now more than ever to serve as a corrective to the spin and the alternative facts that people in power will want to put out there. And then like it or not, there's the ability to bypass those organizations and have a direct conversation with one's own narrow group of followers. And that is what got Trump to win the primaries and then eventually to win the election. You can motivate a small number of people to galvanize into action and get results. I think the challenge for mainstream journalists is to double down on aggressively unearthing information. I think they will become heroes to people who who want to know what's going on in their world. And, you know, that can be a pretty motivated minority too. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you were there at CNN during your tenure there, how difficult was it to truly be the deliverer of news that was unbiased and nonpartisan? Was that the name of the game to stay in the middle? Or did you begin to see that moving to the uh, outer fringes even while uh, you were president of CNN? You know, it wasn't so much an urge for bias that I saw. It was our people wanting to be interesting. And what they were seeing on Fox News was that opinionated people were getting really high ratings. You know, the problem was that CNN journalists really didn't have opinions like that. They wouldn't have been good at doing what Fox was doing. The Fox News personalities weren't journalists per se. They were, you know, Sean Hannity's not a journalist. He's a spokesperson for a mindset or a movement. Well, CNN didn't have a lot of people like that. What we did have were people like Anderson Cooper, who wanted to go around the world. You know, if there was a famine in Niger, he wanted to grab a camera and document that in an impoverished village. And Sanjay Gupta wanted to go report on the earthquake in Haiti. And Fareed Zakaria wanted to make sense of all of the craziness that was going on in the world and and let us understand what America's role in that was. And so it was pretty easy to get back to your question, you know, was it difficult to resist a slide toward bias? It was easy to allow those first-rate journalists to do what they do best. And that's, I think, really the key for any kind of manager of a journalistic endeavor. If you're running a newspaper and you have a team of great reporters, like you might have seen in that movie Spotlight about the Boston Globe reporters who unearthed the Catholic priest abuse in Boston, let them run with it. You know, at 60 Minutes, the whole secret to their success has been they have a group of brilliant producers and reporters, and they just let them go out and find the stories that they think are important and interesting. That's what I did at CNN, and it worked out really well. Doubling down on the power of great journalists and the work that they do yielded enormous ratings, highest ratings in our history to that point, and doubled our profits. You know, now you've moved into a new role, and you're the CEO of Tap Media. How does that change the game for you, and what are you seeing in terms of people wanting to be able to be able to get in contact with specific personalities and or types of views and have clustered communities there in that space. Talk to me about the new vision, where you're going and where you think the country is going and why you moved to the position that you did. 
Well, thanks to technology, we're all able to basically expose ourselves to the kind of entertainment and information that we most want. And we no longer have to swallow whatever a TV network or our cable provider hands us. That is, you don't have to pay $200 a month to get 500 channels that you have no intention of watching. You know, you can spend a lot less. You can spend $8 a month and get Netflix. And increasingly, you can spend a few bucks a month and get more of the kind of person who you want to spend time with. So, you know, everybody's got an idol. Everybody's got someone who they want to hear more from. And the technology now allows us to basically build entire television networks around one person. If that person has enough to say, if they can go deep, and if they've got a passionate fan base. So that's why we're building a television channel around you. (laughs) (laughs) You've got all that. (laughs) And uh, we've already seen it just in, in a few days of shooting, all the many facets and dimensions that you can provide. And, you know, I think people are ready for that. They want to drill deeper. And it could be that they want to drill deeper into sports or music or faith and inspiration. And that's what we do at Tap Media is enable that to happen. I think the larger trend is uh, consumers having more control over how it is they spend their time. And that's a positive in the end because it, it just means that you'll have more great experiences on your phone, on your iPad, on your laptop, or on your television moving forward. You know, the control has moved. I mean, you can literally design what you want to hear, when you want to hear it, at the time that fits your lifestyle or schedule, as opposed to being controlled by my program putting on at six o'clock and I had to work over, I'm stuck in traffic and I didn't get to get it. You can kind of tailor it around your own lifestyle. And it seems like more and more today, people are really, because of the busyness and the changing in the world today, really trying to design a life that fits the uniqueness of being them. Yes, and think about the power of being able to have all of that right on your phone, in your hand. You know, if you get that urge for, say you hear something on the radio that upsets you, and you're wondering to yourself, well, what would Bishop Jakes tell me to do about that? You know, I get to do that because you and I have had some fantastic dinners where we get into some really interesting subjects and I can just ask you and I do. And you know, I text you with questions sometimes. I did that the other day in the middle of a workout over something that we were debating. But now anybody can do that. You know, that's the beauty of of where technology has us today. They could say, I'm just going to go straight to Bishop's Village and I'm going to post my question and and he's going to answer that for me. I think that's just a huge improvement And I think we're just going to see more and more of that. And we're going to very quickly look back to the bad old days when you had to sit there and watch shows when they told you to. I think even binge watching is a huge improvement already, right? Just being able to say, you know what? I feel like feasting on my favorite show tonight. Right. Right. That's just way better. And we want to help people binge. You know, I think it's an interesting way that we are really combating the isolation that we all feel. It's not that we don't interact with people, but we're so busy. We interact with them, but we don't have intimacy with them. And to be able to have conversations and really be able to reach out and touch the world and touch people in that world who reflect your worldview, and then to just process. 
What really blew me away as an individual, I used to think that when people wanted me to comment on something, they really wanted me to take a side. And sometimes I'm a very generalized thinker. I look at everybody's perspective. I try to find common ground. So I'm not inclined to take sides. I'm inclined to see how we can solve problems. So it makes it frustrating for me to have to respond immediately. But I later began to realize that they weren't so much trying to figure out which side I was on. People are trying to process what to think about the bombarding of information and the conflicting ideas, and that they were really looking to me more as a place where there could be a sounding board and a discussion and a processing of information. They want to process it with people that they trust and respect, whose values reflect their own, and platforms like yours provide an opportunity for personalities like me to be able to weigh in on issues and walk them through the process because sometimes, frankly, we don't know what we think either. But being in a place where we can really kind of grind our teeth and have conversations without intruders breaking into it is really a gift because this is, these are troubling times we're living in now. Oh, yeah. And imagine adding to that, getting to meet other people who are transformed by your words and your insights and the the impact of being a part of a community in that way is very powerful. It's the single biggest reason people come to our channels, they've told us. They come because of the personality we've built the channel around, but they stay because of all the other people they meet who are equally moved by that person. And so you're opening up new communities in that fashion. It's very empowering. You know, when you talk about communities, my communities have always been really, really diverse. Of course, I have a faith-based audience a strong demo of African-American audience, but I have a strong demo of uh, Caucasian audiences and people, secular, sacred, Jewish, Christian, because I interact with so many different types of people in the day-to-day business that I do. I've created dialogue between people who normally don't get to talk, and I think that's what really makes a conversation interesting when you have both millennial perspective and then you have baby boomers perspective on it, when you have uh, white conservatives and liberals, black conservatives and liberals uh, sitting down at the table together and saying, you know, we're united about this, but I think differently than you about that, and beginning to understand each other. The best parties, the best dinner parties, the best events are not those where everybody just reflects the same worldview, but they have some things in common and they have some things that are different. And at, at the end of the day, you may not change your position, but to me, it makes you a broader person, a deeper thinking person, a more intelligent person, because you have heard another perspective that while you might not agree with it, you have to respect that there is another way to look at a situation. No doubt about it. And now we're able to do that better than ever. It's just a question of whether people will take advantage of that or whether they will hunker down more. You know, fear leads one to hunker down among your own people and wait it out. And we've seen a lot of that. And hopefully we can kind of turn that around and uh, open up a little more. I think it's really important today. It sounds like in some ways that what we're talking about today, that America is kind of like a bad marriage. (laughs) you know, where the husband and wife are politically correct, but beneath it, they have issues that are unresolved and what they need is to be able to communicate more effectively with each other. 
do you think these conversations, because I've been doing, I've branded a conversation with America where I've brought diverse people in and begin to try to create what Oprah and others created in terms of a place where we can have a dialogue with people who are different from us and find out that we all want to be loved. We all want to raise our children successfully. We all want to be healthy. We all want to breathe clean air. We all want to be safe in our beds at night and begin to look at the things that we have in common. We disagree about how to get there, but we're in total agreement about the destination. It would be huge if America could do that. You know, people who feel besieged don't listen that well. And it may be one of the happy outcomes of a Trump administration that the people who voted for him maybe feel less besieged and now can listen and have that conversation. And likewise, uh, you know, we'll see whether on the other side, people feel more besieged and unwilling to talk. But I think it's more important than ever that it happened. And that doesn't have to be feel good, goody, goody. I mean, the conversations that you conduct on your television program, you know, what you talk about in church, there's nothing namby pamby about that. You you roll up your sleeves and get into some real issues, you know, and like any good marriage counseling, you don't leave the ugly off on the corner. You trot that right out in the middle. And, um, I think we could be in for some interesting, productive conversation. <laughs> yeah, you have to do that. And I think people don't understand that they want you to just gloss things over and not confront issues. And when you try to bring people together, it doesn't mean that you have to compromise on your principles or your truth. It just means you need to widen your perspective to understand the other person's issues. And what I really like to do is work toward finding ways that we can resolve the problems. I really think you hit a real sensitive and strong issue when you started talking about the economic impact on middle America and that sort of thing. As people begin to have their needs met, their tempers calm. When their tempers calm, you can have deeper conversations. It's amazing how economy, spirituality, physicalities are all intertwined. If you're stressed out all the time, your body starts getting sick. If you're broke all the time, you're going to be emotionally distraught and everything is interconnected. And the more we begin to take on issues in and out of the area of faith, which, you know, I've been passionate about. It's why I did my talk show and and why I'm doing so many things that I am doing is that I find that people in church are affected by things outside of church. And if you don't broaden your ability to affect the total man, you can't have the spiritual impact on them that you need. Perhaps the solution, the healing of America, the next front of revival will happen not through one person in the pulpit, but through conversations around the table and tables like what you're creating uh, there with Tap Media. You, you've been real generous with your time, but I just want to sum up by just delving a little bit into this, this one thing. Do you think that there is a way to integrate the big screen with the little screen? Is there a place for there to be connectivity between what we're seeing on television and what we're seeing on social media and elsewhere. I I think it's essential that that happen. And I think the most effective communicators are the ones who are able to take that macro picture and bring it down to the level that I can really process it for my life. You know, we all think about these headlines that we read in terms of our children, our old age, our parents, and it really helps to be able to bring it down to that level of personal and and intimate. You know, 
the pace of life today is faster than ever, thanks to technology. Think about how impatient you get at the cash machine when it takes one and a half seconds for the dollars to spit out, <laughs> and you're, right? And, and, and you're like, come on, come on, come on. Right. The beauty of church is that it forces that pace to stop for a moment. And these conversations that you're talking about can do the same thing. And if we can recreate that quiet space, that, and that's what we're trying to do with our channels is actually step outside the noise of the internet and create a little walled area where we can actually talk to one another, listen to one another, think, and hopefully get beyond this hunger for snap judgment and easy answers, which I think is at the root of a lot of the illness that we're seeing right now. Well, I certainly have enjoyed the conversation with you and the opportunity to exchange ideas. I, I'm sure that our listeners have as well. Thank you for being so generous with your time. John, is there a final thought that you want to leave with our listeners as as we face the uncertainty of the future? And, and many of us are concerned about the impact on our own lives. We're dealing with day-to-day issues in our own space. And we're, we're looking at the news. We're looking at the world around us. And we're looking at the world in our own house And for everybody, it's not always bright and sunny. What would you say to them? You know, I think that everyone is seeking answers to the very biggest questions. And the people who voted for Trump were doing so as part of a process of trying to fill a hole of some sort. It almost was like an act of faith for them that didn't have anything to do with the facts that they see around them. It was to fill a need. And if we can all be conscious of the needs that we're all feeling, maybe we can start to form the basis of at least understanding one another and get away from the scapegoating and remember that at core, we're all human beings and you know, start from there and move forward. Well, thank you for that. It's inspirational. It's very, very important. And it's also nice for people to know that the people who are behind the scenes, who are making the decisions about media, about television, about programming, are real people with real families and real concerns as well, and that we can have an opportunity to uh, talk to them and drain your brain like this. It's, uh, it's been a great and interesting conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, we've been talking to John Klein. He is now the CEO and co-founder of Type Media, the cutting-edge subscription-based platform so that like-minded people can get together thinking bright people of diverse views and reflections of life can have dialogue and conversation and process what is going on in America. Of course, he was the former president of CNN and has a really wide view and a deep understanding of what it is to be impacted by media, journalism, politics, business, and the world around you and what that does to you as an individual. Thanks again for your time, John. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me.